a song of myself as what you might call an internalized spiritual quest. And every time he deals with an obstacle, he grows stronger and larger and able to encompass more, see more, know more. Until the end of the poem, when he tries to answer the greatest question that's remaining, and he can't do it. Welcome back to another edition of the Must Book Club. I am your host and president of the club, David Duane. Uh, today we are going to be discussing Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. We have a very special guest today. Uh, we're joined by Mark Edmondson. Mark's a university professor at the University of Virginia. His new book is called Song of Ourselves, Walt Whitman and the Fight for Democracy, which is due out next year. The previous two episodes provided a lot of context around Whitman and his life and times and different experiences he had. But in this one, we are going to go deeper into this text specifically. So for that reason, Mouse editor Brian Chappelle is going to lead the conversation, um, which I found to be very thrilling. Mark is able to take us to some very uh, tender, spiritual creative places in his uh, assessment of Whitman. So I'm very excited to present this conversation to you guys. Thank you so much, Professor Edmondson. The first question that we've asked um, each of our guests now is, what was it about Walt Whitman for you that inspired you to dedicate so much time and energy to his work in your career? Well, I've loved Whitman ever since I was very young. Um, that needs a little qualification. The first Whitman poem that I read was Cavalry Crossing a Ford. And I read that as a uh, high school junior, I think. And I wrote a little piece about it in which I mocked it pretty extensively. And the teacher loved it because it showed some level of engagement. So beginning about then, I thought Whitman was a silly and beside the point sort of poet. When I went to the University of Massachusetts, I studied with somebody named David Linson, wonderful teacher, author of a superb book called On Drugs. And uh, David said, no, 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 you're wrong. I want you to go back and read Song of Myself. And that night I went up into a carol in the library at the University of Massachusetts and I opened the book and I was absolutely dumbstruck at what an astonishing and wonderful poem that it was. Since then, I've read it quite frequently. I've read all through Whitman, um, always, always going back to Walt. I had been reading Whitman constantly, constantly, constantly for a long time and taking different sorts of inspiration from him. But then with new developments in politics, I began to see Whitman with a different eye. And that is not just as a great aesthetic poet, somebody who can do magnificent things with language uh, and help you see the world in a new way, but also as a political poet. And uh, I took a trip to Pittsburgh and I was, uh, walking across a bridge, I think it's the Andy Warhol Bridge, oddly enough, or close to the Andy Warhol Museum. And I had this vision of Walt Whitman and his poem and uh, something or other, what was it, asked me, try to bring Walt alive into the present. I think he's got some answers or some partial answers for some of the things that are bothering us right now. Uh, so I set to work and started looking at Whitman as a political poet and as somebody who knows things about democracy that we don't really know or haven't fully assimilated. So it was a moment of inspiration when you were struck walking across a bridge in Pittsburgh. 
not quite what uh, St. Paul had, but yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I had visitation from Papa Walt, and he said, do a book about me. And, you know, when Papa Walt asks you from the ether, you can't say no. Uh, our previous guests have really um, helped us to put Whitman into context and, and his life and times, but also how he speaks to ours. But I think we have an, a, an important opportunity today to really look closely at some lines from Song of Myself and really make some deeper connections here. And so the, the next question I had for you was whether there was um, a line or a song from Song of Myself that is kind of your your anchor, your favorite one, or um, something that you return to. And if you wouldn't mind reading it to the group and, and saying a few words about it. Sure. Well, there are so many of them. Um, I think of Song of Myself as what you might call an internalized spiritual quest. And what that means is that Walt starts out as one sort of being, a working man, one of the roughs, as he calls himself. And he progresses through stages of what you might call initiation on the way to embodying a fully democratic individual. Now he leaves some questions unanswered at the end, no doubt about that. But um, so he's got to deal with lots and lots of obstacles. And every time he deals with an obstacle, he grows stronger and larger and able to encompass more, see more, know more. Until the end of the poem, when he tries to answer the greatest question that's remaining, and he can't do it. But in my opinion, he answers it about four, five, eight years later in the hospitals of Washington, DC. But I'll be a little more specific here. So the first great moment of self-creation in the poem, uh, you can say it just starts at the beginning. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom uh, belonging to me is good belongs to you. So that's to make a connection with the reader, should the reader want to be connected with. Um, and most people think it's all about conjunction, Walt and the person that he is uh, talking to. But I think that, although that's true, Walt is also talking to himself. And uh, most specifically, he's talking to his soul, okay? So at the beginning of the poem, you are hearing from this creature called the self, everyday Walt, one of the roughs, kind of a tough guy. He's depicted in the um, uh, engraving of a daguerreotype that's on the frontispiece of the book. There's no, uh, no acknowledgement of who the author is until midway through Song of Myself when he cries out Walt Whitman, an American. What he's trying to do is coax forward his soul, which is the most tender, spiritual, and creative part of himself. You read the um, notebooks in 1854, and you see that he's grappling with this notion of the soul. What is this thing? It's not Christian at all in his, in his mind, and he sees it as a source of connection between other men and women. But there's a lot of times when he's talking about the soul in his um, notebooks, and he'll just trail off. He doesn't know what to say about it, but he knows he's on to something and he's discovered something fresh about what's inside of himself. And in Song of Myself, the first thing that he is going to try to do is get coax the soul out into the world at large and join with it so that you get this combination of self and soul. You might call it a combination of toughness and sensitivity, but it ramifies in lots of other ways too. And that's the drama, it seems to me, of the first 100, 200 lines of, uh, of Song of Myself. And it culminates with this amazing and very strange love scene between the self and the soul. I really love this idea of the quest because for me, one of the beautiful aspects of the poem is that it is about a self that expands. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about the questions to ask here, I was thinking about selfhood and the new millennium here. 
and I, I often wonder if it, it consists in fact of a retraction or, of, or of a reduction of what the self is and can be the, a narrowing of the self. Um, so for example, one uh, pair of moments that I wanted to share with you also come from the beginning at the end of song one, um, he writes creeds and school in schools in abeyance, retiring back a while sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard nature without check with original energy. And then when I teach this, I often teach it with um, the closing of song number four. I have no mockings or arguments. I witness and wait. And this modality there at the end of uh, song four seems to be counter to what we see in public discourse today. I don't, I can't think of anyone who would admit that they have no mockings or arguments that they are content to witness and wait. Rather, everybody has to have an opinion about everything. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lack of openness. I wonder what you think about that notion of self and how it is American selfhood as it has evolved since Whitman's time. The uh, salient line to me in what you read is creeds and schools held in a band. Um, because make no mistake, Walt's ambitions for this poem are enormous. He is with this poem, with the 1855 volume, I think you're quoting from something a little bit later, but I rely on the 55 for my own book. Um, He's gonna found an entirely new literature, a new literature for a democratic nation. There's never been a democratic literature before. He likes little intimations and some past writers. He likes Dickens, give or take, But by and large, discounting Emerson, whom he adored and eventually rebelled against in various rather civil ways, Walt Walt believes that he's beginning a new form of literature that is non-feudal, non-feudal. Key word in understanding Walt, I think, is feudalism. Kings and queens and dukes and duchesses, special people, the extraordinary. All of that is of the past. It's feudal, it's European, and it's got to go. But Walt's way of saying, of banishing something is very mild. He's not an aggressive person at all, not aggressive in life and not aggressive in poetry. So what he's interested in when he says creeds and schools held in advance is just turning away from the literature of Europe, which he adores in certain regards, but it's just not relevant to the new age that he is, wants, to try to, uh, wants to try to inaugurate, right? The only philosopher that Whitman could stand, and I don't know how much he read of him sequentially, was Hegel. And Hegel was somebody who's had a progressive sense of history, right? And age supplanted age. And Walt believed that he was supplanting the age of feudalism with this, uh, with this poem. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big part of what he's trying to do here. So then there's lots of questions to answer. What does a genuinely democratic person think about God, about Jesus, about violence, about sex, all of those things he has to encounter, and he does so uh, quite uh, quite successfully, it seems to me. Your book is about Whitman and democracy. And so I wonder what are some um, creeds and schools that we hold today that should be held in abeyance in order to advance democratic subjectivity and collectivity? What are some, yeah. some things that hang us up in our public discourse? You know, um, it's a good question. But I dare say you may be asking the wrong person. I'm a student of Whitman, and I want him to function by implication in relationship to the, uh, to the present. Because from his point of view now, he has founded a new, very flexible creed, a new, very flexible school, which is the school of what uh, David Brooks, surprising person to quote in this regard, calls spiritual democracy. 
right? Spiritual democracy. Whitman loved the Constitution, he loved the Declaration of Independence, but those texts were inadequate to the founding of a new literature for a truly new nation, right? So this is what is, uh, this is what's at stake here. He's in many ways, he's like, um, he's similar to Mark Twain, who greatly admired him, though I don't think Twain could understand a word he was saying, but he loved the idea of war. And Twain is constantly poking fun at the aristocracy. You see it in uh, Connecticut Yankee, you see it in Huckleberry Finn, you see it in The Prince and the Pauper, you see it in certain rather somber ways in the uh, book about Joan of Arc. But Twain in his autobiography says, you know, you can only hold off love for aristocracy and the special and the extraordinary and the glittering for so long. And they're just gonna come back and we're gonna have to deal with them again. And eventually they're gonna take the democracy down. So if you do wanna look in the contemporary landscape, and I guess you do, um, I think you could say that all around us, there is what you might call a surrogate aristocracy. It's the aristocracy of the rich and famous, aristocracy of the movie star, the sports star, the, um, you know, a president who is very regal in his mode of presentation, right? I mean, he you know, comports himself like a king, his wife looks like the duchess, he named his kid Baron, all that stuff is out there. And people have been fascinated by it, as we are fascinated by glittering gold and greatness. And uh, I think Walt asks us, and particularly in this passage about the sun, uh, to see if we can't look away from sun-like figures and think of ourselves as leaves of grass instead. Very odd thing, but I think that's where he is. Whitman has an expanding view of the self, but we see also in the poem that that has to go hand in hand with an expanding idea of what the world is that we live in, and the, the cosmos that we inhabit. Um, George Hutchinson last week did a wonderful connection with ecology and the rhythms of creation and, and the universe and so forth. But one of my favorite lines that I return to comes at the end of song number six, um, which is a metaphysical statement and a, also a statement of consolation uh, where he says, all goes onward and outward, nothing collapses and to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. And th this, is a, this is a really remarkable statement for me, and it's a statement of faith, if you will. So I wonder if you if you could make a connection here between the idea of Whitman's sense of selfhood and his sense of the cosmos and the world that he inhabits. Well, to begin with, Whitman is a radically open-ended writer, right? His eventual partial conclusion for song is that we're gonna expand and expand in the direction of more and more democracy, more and more equality more and more brotherhood and sisterhood, right? One of the most astonishing passages in this poem is the one where a Jesus rises from the tomb, not as the Christ who's gonna go sit at the right hand of the Father and come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, but as a prophet of democracy, that which you do to the least of mine, you do to me, Jesus says, who leads people out into the future down a long open road one of a vast expanding procession. Just one of, he's just, Jesus is just one of us, right? And um, so that idea of perpetual expansion is very important. The idea about dying and uh, knowing that it's luckier than, than any of us think. I don't know if Walt really comes through on that particular perception. He says it quite a lot and you see him really insist on it in the uh, Lilacs Elegy where he says he's seen the dead 
and they are not in pain. Those who are left is in, in pain. I think there are implications about how to deal with death in a democracy in the 55 Leaves of Grass, but I'm a little put off by the cavalier gestures like that one, beautifully phrased as it is, that he is, uh, that he is prone to. You feel like he's forcing himself to believe something that he might not really believe? I think he strongly believes it, but he doesn't quite have the reasons why at his disposal yet. I think he eventually gets them by implication, if you become, this will sound a little crazy, but it's Walt is not a conventional thinker. If you're willing to become a blade of grass, one of the great multitudes, you'll have your individuality and you'll have your group identity. And when you die, what will happen to you? You will feed other blades of grass, right? That's what you'll do. Now, that is not very much to promise in terms of what death is gonna be like in a democracy. But I think it's implicit in the piece. It's not like the aristocratic way of dying where you wanna be famous for what you've said or what you've done, or even for your family line. It suggests, and I take this, I'm you know, trying to make explicit what's implicit, that if you are willing to be a blade of grass, when you die, your contribution to the democracy will continue to live on in the lives of other people who are enjoying a level of happiness and freedom that has never existed before in the world. Are we there yet? No, we're still a heavily hierarchical society. We like to look up and we like to look down, but that doesn't mean the game's over, far from it. Hi, I'm Shaista. Uh, my question is this non-feudal belief system that Whitman upheld could be seen as passive aggressive. However, his work lends to a subjective view and critique of the development of an American democracy. This kind of reminds me of the art of allowing in spiritual or metaphysical practice. And I wanted to know, is there any evidence that he adhered to some form of non-religious yet spiritual belief or practice? I think so, Shaista. What Walt said frequently was that he wanted the Americans to be the most religious people that the world had ever seen, right? And yet his skepticism about all institutional religion was very strong. Right. There are certain, I mean, Whitman loves everybody, but there are certain people who make him uncomfortable, intellectuals, school teachers and preachers. Right. And so he's always trying to envelop and love a preacher, but it's very, very hard for him. So what does he mean by religious? Right. Because he's not an atheist. He's not a Marxist atheist. He is always in awe of God and he says beautiful lines about what God has created and God's presence in the world. But he says, I don't think about God that much. I, I, got, I, mean, I got a democracy in front of me. I got these people in front of me that I love. And I'm a follower of Jesus to the extent that Jesus is the first egalitarian. Right? So what we're looking for here is a religion of democracy. You know, is it going to work? You know, if somebody said to you, what's your religion? And you said, my religion is democracy. It's equality and friendship, friendliness, and never looking up and never looking down. That's pretty surprising. But I think it makes some sense. You know, he wants to go all the way with democracy. Leaves us with an interesting question. And that is, if Walt is so skeptical about the great, great people, great work, right? So skeptical about feudalism, who is he? Isn't he a great poet? Isn't he an extraordinary individual? And so he spends the length of the poem trying to figure that one out. I don't think he figures it out in the poem, but he figures it out later in life. Does that begin to answer your question? It's a very interesting thing. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you, glad you're here. Let me first say one more thing about Walt, which is 
it, it's almost necessary in order to understand his achievement, or at least my interpretation of his achievement. And that is this, that at the end of the poem, Walt tries at least three times to figure out who he is and what he's done, you know? Is he a leader that needs to be slain by his disciples? A very non-Whitmanian thing to say, which suggests certain unease on his part. Uh, sounds like Nietzsche, sounds like Emerson. Um, a buddy of yours who gives you crackers to eat and milk to drink and puts his arm around your shoulder before he goes off into the sunset or you go off together. Can't really figure out how to square his feeling about the amazing achievement that he has accomplished and his feeling about uh, democracy and equality. Is he special? Well, in, when the Civil War comes, as you probably know, you're a student of Walt, uh, Whitman goes off to Washington, D.C., and he spends two years, every single day, visiting soldiers in the hospital, comforting them, talking to them, writing them letters, holding their hands while they suffer and while they die. He frequently, I mean, you can find the greatest poet we've ever had, right? You walk into a hospital, and there he'll be in the back playing 20 questions with four wounded troopers, right? Or, you know, holding their hands while they pass into the other world. Or sitting down and writing letters to a parent of a young boy who is, uh, who's gone in the service of his country. So, um, uh, Walt is, um, you know, so what does he achieve there? He achieves an amazing instance of humility, you know? The humbleness, I mean, if you've done what he's done, he knew he'd done it. And then you go off to a hospital and completely self-abnegate for two years, you know? That is the legacy of Walt, amazing achievement combined with astonishing modesty. And in this, I think he was inspired by the one politician that he ever admired, and that is Abraham Lincoln, right? He had such a strong rapport with Lincoln. He couldn't even speak to Lincoln because he was so in awe of the complexity of the men. But what he saw in Lincoln was a model for what he, what he aspired to himself. And that was extraordinary modesty. Lincoln was modest. You know, I mean, Lincoln is the obverse, it seems to me, of the kind of feudal potentate who occasionally takes possession of our White House, right? He just understood his, he was one of the most brilliant men who's ever lived in America. He understood his limits and he was aware of his limits and he was in constant pain because of his inadequacy in regard to the crisis that he was dealing with. And yet he got up every day and he dealt with it. And he was just surpassingly modest. One of my favorite Lincoln stories is very simple. People pass through the White House, I think it's New Year's Day, shaking his hands. And by the time the day is over, Lincoln's hand is three times its normal size. Right? Everybody came through just to say hello to the president. Right? And he wouldn't miss that for anything. He suffered horribly in the White House. His boy whom he adored died. His wife was going mad. The nation was in terrible shape. And yet with great humility and a tremendous intellect and heart, he hung in there. And Walt looked at him and said, yeah, that's, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So that was where I wanted to end up with Walt. And I'm sorry, I bullied my way into that. Uh, no, that's... You're forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was wonderfully said. Thank you. I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing your opinion about the state of poetry in American literature. Mm-hmm. The first essay of yours that I read was your, your essay in Harper's in 2012 called Poetry Slam, The Decline of American Verse. Um, what is going on in American poetry for our, for our listeners? Well, you know, that's a fairly grouchy essay, which I, I kind of had a dyspeptic weekend and dashed it off. And uh, it, it's been out there causing trouble ever since. 
I don't regret the trouble because what it was, was a kind of a call um, to poets to write stuff that was more ambitious, you know, write stuff. And also that was written, not just by read, not just by other poets, but by everyday common readers. I think of myself as a common reader. I look for the two things Horace told me to look for, look for pleasure and I look for instruction. And uh, I didn't find it in many contemporary poets. I saw a lot of talent, but a lot of overproduction, a lot of in-groupy stuff, a lot of writing for each other, a lot of trying to impress one another. Um, So I had a real hard time finding any poet that spoke to me as a common reader and not as a fellow poet. Um, I very much like Frederick Seidel. He has something to say and he says it. You know, that's what, what, one of the things about being a poet, you gotta have something to say, not just be good verbally, you gotta have something to say. And he does. And I think that for instance, a poet like Terence Hayes, young African-American, very lively, very vital. Ross Gay, real Whitmanian, lively, vital, kind, big hearted writing for other people, not just for poets. And I'm seeing this from any number, often they're African-American poets. Um, And uh, so I see good things happening, but I can't be as precise about it as you'd like me to be. It's not my scholarly area. I have one final question before I hand it over to David in the group. Um, Your book that that you published before this upcoming one was called The Heart of Humanities, Reading, Writing, Teaching. That was released in 2018. And and it was a follow-up from three previous books, Why Read, Why Teach, and Why Write. You've turned your attention to the state of the humanities, humanistic education, public discourse. Um, Tell us a little bit about this side of your work and if you could summarize your main points here about it. Yeah, sure. The Heart of the Humanities was just a big triple-decker sandwich that was Why Read, Why Teach, and Why Write, Uh, all all between uh, one set of covers with a new... uh, introduction, right? Just write about Malcolm X, a figure who has fascinated me ever since I encountered him. His autobiography of Malcolm X was one of the very first real books that I read, and it just galvanized me. I thought it was amazing. And so um, I'm at, at heart a school teacher, and I'm always touched to see that, um, or to, to remember that uh, one of my great professors, Harold Bloom, at the end of his career said, that's all I am. I'm just a school teacher, you know? And so everything I write, is stuff that I say in class, and then I kind of write it down, I go on and start saying something else. Um, And why write? I wanted to introduce people to the pure joys of writing and also give them some strategies for getting writing done. People just strangle themselves in their inability to write. Um, Why teach is just, you know, about the pleasures of teaching. And if there's a central insight there, I guess, it is that, you know, you probably have to be in a little bit of tension, not only with your students, but with the overall modus operandi of the institution, which is, you know, a high cash operation that mills out diplomas. But it's so humane and generous in there that it's possible to, to step aside from that sort of imperative. Why read is a short book, but it gives my basic theory of teaching in a classroom which revolves around my former colleague and much lamented friend, uh, Richard Rorty, and his view of a final vocabulary, which is what I believe you construct by virtue of your reading and talking in a context like this. How do you see this growth of the literary industry on university campuses and in publishing houses kind of affecting the, the landscape in terms of what people read and how people read and write and so forth? Yeah, well, 
Um, I think that in the case of poetry, and as I say, this may be changing because I'm just encountering new young poets that I think are very, very promising. Um, it surely has made people more cautious, right? I mean, there are things you can't say in the academy. And by my last information, poets are people who often go around saying things that you weren't supposed to say. Eliot, Pound, Stevens, Frost, they're all saying things that are at least in their time and they continue to be quite provocative, right? So that you're getting a kind of neutering of poetry that's a part of the institutional structure. If the fact that criticism is institutionalized bothers me a little bit less um, because we're looking for a certain level of consensus in how we think about various writers and how we think about what it is we're doing. I often don't participate in that consensus, but I have no objection to it. I sent both of my sons to school and I don't necessarily feel that I wanted them taught by eccentric geniuses when they were reading Shakespeare. I wanted them to be taught by good scrupulous scholarly Shakespeareans. Uh, in terms of fiction, um, you know, fiction is something that appeals to, or doesn't, to a broad audience, you know? So if um, MFAs come out and they can sell their books to the world at large, good, they've had a little shelter from the storm and they've gotten a chance to generate work. And uh, I think some, you know, very provocative stuff has emerged from those programs. I say this perhaps with a little shade of uh, prejudice because my son is a Stegner Fellow at Stanford and he's a novelist. What will happen though eventually because students so love taking creative writing courses is that you will probably get, maybe we already have it, I don't even know, two streams of fiction, one for the larger world, you know, and there'll be people who teach in the academy who transcend that, um, the academy. And then you'll have other work that is for the academic world, for professors only, much as the poetry world has gone and maybe it's emerging from. And so that's, that's a bit of a problem. You know, of course, the question that I think is implicit in what you're um, generously asking is, we're going to have a lot of writers out there, in part because it's so damn easy to tap these keys. When I first started writing, man, it was like a physical event. You're slamming away on that old selectric, you know, pushing correct to type in and white out. And, you know, it's like, like going to the gym. Now it's a piece of cake. And so, you know, how many are you going to have? Lots and lots of writers. Are you going to have as many readers? You know, my prediction somewhat you know, tongue in cheek is that 20 years from now, we will not think so much about great writers, but great readers, great audiences, people who go to things all the time and say and respond in wonderful ways, because everybody's going to be a writer. And how in the heck are we going to curate this stuff? I don't know. That'll be somebody else's problem. I write about old stuff for, for the most part. It's actually like perfect segue into the question that I have. It brings us back to Whitman in some ways, uh, okay. which is when you think about him as establishing the democratic literature, mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure he's doing this, but I'm too slow to pick up on it. I mean, is he calling us to be democratic readers? To evolve our reading sensibility in a different direction than the feudalist reader? Yes, I think he is. I think what he's suggesting, though Walt never hits you over the head with anything, right, is turn away from aristocratic writing. Turn away from the special, the extraordinary the rich, the strange, you know? And then you kind of look at Walt and you say, well, uh, what's left, <laughs> you know? What are novels about if not somebody who's at least a little bit special? It's, uh, I just heard a European intellectual, I might've been Milos, somebody asked him about novels and he said, I am, I'm basically against the novel. What, against the novel? 
but the idea of a protagonist who's special and maybe glowing with a narcissistic glow. Um, Walt is skeptical about that. What, what, what kind of art would Walt like? Well, I guess if you could draw the Marxist dogma out of it, he would probably love Brecht's plays. He would, now, you know, it gets a little bit tough. Lyric, poetry, sure. But anything that focuses on an individual at the expense of the group, you know, but not the Marxist group, not boy meets girl meet tractor, but, you know, the, just the joys of working and doing and loving and having a family and being, uh, being an American. So, um, you know, it's not just that you read in a certain spirit, but also that the stuff you read doesn't feed your feudal fantasies, doesn't feed your feudal fantasies, you know? But this is also the guy who, in his old age, wanting to, for him and his work to live on, you know, would take those pictures with the fake butterfly on his finger saying that he had tamed the butterfly himself, built himself an enormous tomb with the words of Walt Whit Whitman above it as though he was like a pharaoh. You know, so he's, he's hardly perfect in this regard. But in this one poem, in 1855, he doesn't make too many mistakes in terms of uh, giving you a real democratic literature. You know, where does it go from there? I don't know. I don't know. Have you witnessed students attitude towards Whitman change over time? Well, I just started teaching Whitman intensely about four or five years ago. And they love him, absolutely love him. I'm just shocked by it. People come in galvanized by him. People come in in tears talking about how much they love Walt. And on my own you know, way of talking about Walt, which does speak indirectly, but certainly to the current uh, political situation, they're happy to deal with that and think about it. Uh, but just the sheer beauty of Walt's evocation, which I think Brian was getting at, of being alive. You know, one of my favorite Whitman lines is, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of, of infidels. And he is, mice and miracles. Not that I haven't put a number of them in traps, but you know, I still, I, I do believe that. And uh, Walt is there to proclaim the extraordinary beauty of, uh, of what, is, uh, what is out there. If you're looking for Walt's inheritors, you know, maybe you look away from literature and look at somebody like Diego Rivera, who loved Walt. The number of artists, musicians, poets, painters, you name it, who have been inspired by Walt Whitman all over the globe. Every color, shape, and size is just overwhelming. But Diego Rivera's ever been to Detroit and seen the industrial mural there? It's, it's beyond description. It's beauty and it's uh, sublimity, it's grandeur. Um, and I think if Walt saw that, he'd say, ah, he's got me, he's got me exactly right. Because it's, it's a bunch of equals doing their jobs. I've got, I've got personally just one last question, which is, is there, is there a question about Walt that you would love to know the answer to or have the time and space to work on? You know, everybody who studies Whitman's work is overwhelmingly curious about Whitman's sexuality, right? Um, he was very mysterious about it, but some things are palpably true. Although he was very seductive to women, he was not interested in them and he liked women very, very much. His relationship with his mother was absolutely wonderful but he was not interested in them as romantic partners at all. He was very interested in young men, particularly working class men. And maybe the, one of the happiest periods of his life was um, when he was in Washington and um, he got together with a, uh, a companion um, and they just sort of rode around the streetcars looking at each other because they both each thought the other was absolutely beautiful. Now, did Whitman, was Whitman actively homosexual? 
Isn't it amazing that we don't know that? We really don't. Um, he, uh, Richard Poirier, who's an incredibly perceptive critic, he just has a great gut, says, oh yes, he definitely wants. Harold Bloom, who is also perceptive, says, no, he thinks that Whitman's major sexual outlet was masturbation. This great masturbation scene in the middle of this, uh, this poem. David Reynolds, who writes a really beautiful, detailed cultural history of Whitman says, what I say, I don't know, <laughs> I looked it over. But it's almost a, it's a secondary curiosity, you know? Whitman's work doesn't change based upon what his experiential erotic life was. I'd just be curious. Let him talk a little bit. Hard to get him to talk though. He wanted to listen to you. He always wanted to listen to you. Can you imagine a writer who's willing to shut up and listen? Good luck. Found this to be an incredibly enlightening conversation and really generous. And I really deeply appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm very grateful for this. I got uh, so learned a little bit more about how to talk about my book, which I suppose I'll be called upon to do, since people would much rather have you talk about your book than, than sit down and then read actually it. read it. Right? Um, you know, when people say, "Give me the elevator version of your book," all I can say is, "Let's take the stairs." Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to Professor Edmondson for sharing his insights with us today. We encourage you to follow up with this interview by tracking down any of his numerous books and articles. And of course, keep an eye out for Song of Ourselves, Whitman and the Fight for Democracy, when it arrives sometime in 2021. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, mouse books make great gifts so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.